Is God in quarantine? Can God be quarantined? I was quarantined as my in-laws tested positive. This is, don't worry, this was a long time ago. Um, you might be quarantined, and in a sense, culture is quarantined. The way we've changed the way we do everything. Go to a restaurant, you're outside. We're in a quarantine season. The question is, is God affected by quarantine? Is God quarantined? Christians look to God as our someone we desire. A Christian should find joy in God. And I love um, the saying that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. That as we find pleasure in God, God looks good to the world. And we need more joy in God. We don't need people who are grumbling as they serve him. I just don't want to go to hell, that's all. Um, we find joy and pleasure in God. We want to be with God. But what happens when you don't feel that anymore? What happens when you aren't getting pleasure from God, when you aren't delighting in him, when you don't feel his presence? What happens when it feels like God is quarantined? Or you are quarantined from God. What happens when it feels like we're isolated? That's what Psalm 13 is about. Now, last week I told you guys we might do 13 and 14 because both Psalms deal with where is God from two different perspectives. Um, after preparing through the week, I decided there's too much to say on both. So we're going to split it into two. Kind of like two parts. Where is God? Part one. Where is God? Part two. So tonight, where is God? Part one. Questions from quarantine. I like that. We all have questions in quarantine. Psalm 13 has a ton of questions. So let's go ahead and look at it. So Psalm 13, verse uh, the title says, To the choir master, so this is to be sung, a psalm of David. Verse 1. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Back when we began the Psalms, I told you that there are generally, very generally, two kinds of Psalms in the Bible. There are the Psalms of praise, when everything seems to be going great, God's on the throne, we love him, he's the best thing in the world. Uh, and then there's the Psalms of pain, where there's a lot of complaining, there's a lot of trouble. And we've had a lot of Psalms of pain to open the book of Psalms, haven't we? And Psalm 13 is one of... <sighs> The darkest psalms of pain. 
Now, technically, these are called psalms of lament. I think we we um, relate to the word pain a little bit better, but scholars call these psalms of lament. It's a it's a crying psalm. It's a weeping psalm. A lamenting psalm. And they're usually structured with three movements. You have the cry of pain, and we actually see that in the first two verses. The cry of pain, or the complaint, is how long? Four times. How long? How long? How long? How long? And we're still asking that. How long are we going to be in quarantine? The psalmist is asking, how long, God, are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide from me? How long will I carry this sorrow? And how long shall my enemy exult? So that's the pain he's feeling. I think if you use your imagination, you see precisely where we are in this psalm. These are our questions. Hence, we're calling these questions from quarantine. We want to know how long. And how long is it going to seem like God is just going to be indifferent to everything? Verse 3 and 4, we have the prayer. So laments move with first they complain with pain. Then they offer their prayer. And so you see he now turns and requests something. He says, consider me, answer me, or look at me, turn my way again. Oh Lord, my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. So here's his prayer. Turn to me or I am in trouble. Three lests. If you don't turn to me, I sleep the sleep of death. That's verse three. Verse four. If you don't turn to me, my enemy will say, I won. And my enemy will rejoice because I'm shaken. So that's his prayer. God, there's a lot at stake here. And then verses five and six, laments go with pain. Then they move to prayer and then they finish with praise. So technically, every psalm is a psalm of praise. Just some of them have a lot of pain mixed with the praise. So verse 5 and 6, the praise. I have trusted in your steadfast love. Steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed. We've talked about it a couple times in the past. And the hesed is, it's hard. uh, I think the the New King James uses uh, the word, uses mercy in there, right? Steadfast love, his mercy, um, these are all describing Hesed, and what Hesed describes is God's covenantal love and commitment to his people. Think about that. Covenantal love and commitment. So God makes a covenant with his people, and he says, I swear this to you. And when, when two parties, a king and people, made a covenant back in the old days, they would actually cut an animal, and, and the two parties would walk between the cut animal, and the significance was that this we're basically we're swearing our lives upon this covenant. If it gets broken, then this will look at the severed animal. That's what it will look like. And this is when we see the word steadfast love. This is God's hesed. And, and so the praise is, look, I've trusted in your covenantal and committed love for me. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation so this is all this forward looking, like I'm in the midst of pain, but I'm forward looking to praise. And verse six, I will sing to the Lord. Now, Lord, here is his actual personal name. It's all capital letters. So that's uh, what that would be what you would pronounce as Yahweh. 
that the Jews never used that name. They would say Hashem, the name, or Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. So, but you're, you're not just talking to a God. You're talking to the God of the burning bush, the God who delivered Israel, the God who made a covenant from Mount Sinai with his people, the God who gave him a land, the God who sent his son to die for our sins, the God who gave pastors and apostles and preachers and teachers and spiritual gifts to the church so that there would be a community of people to follow him through these times. That God, he's saying, I will sing to him because he has dealt bountifully with me. And the the ability to sing that praise right after verses one and two. How long will you forget me? Will you hide your face? Or love the message says, how long am I going to look at the back of your head? How long are you going to ignore me? I'm talking to you. It's almost like he's just daring God. Like, how dare you? From that to this praise at the end. That's what the Psalms can do is they don't only resonate with our joy when we feel joy, but they resonate with our pain when we feel pain and they lead us through the pain. They lead us into the valley of the shadow of death. And they say, look, you can either sit here and keep crying how long or we can explore this together. We can pray in our pain together and then we can emerge from the other side of the valley praising together. So, our focus, though, is going to be verses 1 and 2. Because here's the pain, and here are the questions. It's a nice quartet of questions from quarantine. You like that alliteration, don't you? I did. A quartet. We got four of them. How long? How long? How long? How long? But what the psalmist doesn't ask is why. I found that really interesting. Nowhere does he say, why have you forgotten me? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why am I alone and taking sorrow in my own heart? Why is my enemy exalted? He just wants to know how much longer. There's confidence even in his questioning God. There's confidence even in the doubt. How long will you forget me? Have you ever asked God, why have you forgotten me? Sometimes we think, how dare a Christian doubt God? He said he'll always be with us. How dare you say you've forgotten me? You've turned your back. But Psalm 13, yes, there is moments of doubt in this Psalm. But this is not going to be, and we'll contrast this next week. It's not going to be the same kind of doubt that you find in verse 1 of chapter 14. This is next week. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Christians can doubt God. Christians can wonder and question God. Because when they do so, it actually sets them on a quest for where are you, God? It's them seeking after him when they don't understand what's going on. Or they're in pain and they're troubled. We're okay with doubt. I'm okay with doubt. I'm okay if you doubt. I have sometimes asked God questions like, what are you doing? And wondered and doubted and said, is that how I would do it? Why didn't you consult me? (laughs) Doubt is fine. Because doubt is an expression of wanting to know God better. But 
Denial is what we're trying to avoid. Chapter 14 is a statement of denial. There is no God. That's a statement, not a wondering. Where is God? It's there is no God. We don't want to encourage denial. So what Psalm 13 helps us to do is in our doubts, in our questions, in our in our spiritual quarantine, it helps us to walk through these questions so that we come to a climatic praise by the end. So we've been looking. Um, we're actually coming to the end of this, but you may you may recall this is how the Psalms are structured here. We open with the first two Psalms, they're introductions. They're like, this is what you're walking into. You're walking into a meditation on scripture, Psalm 1, and you're walking into an adoration of the king, Psalm 2. Then Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 hit the ground running with David in flight from his rebellious son, who's after him to kill him. And we find out that these Psalms are for real people who are living through real life situations. And life is often in the midst of your run, mid-stride, God! That's usually what life is. And so the Psalms meet us realistically. But then, after those five Psalms of panic and run, David calms down. Because David has learned through prayer to rest in God. So Psalm 8 then comes. So those five running ones, then Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a middle psalm of sorts. I'll show you how. Psalm 8, he looks up to the heavens and he wonders at God. Suddenly he can just breathe. He can pause. He can marvel at God. And then we come to Psalms 9 and 10. 11, 12. Remember 9 and 10 is one psalm. So 9 and 10, 11, 12. Tonight is 13. Tomorrow or next week is 14, that's five. Psalm eight, in other words, I need to put this down. Psalm, Psalm eight, in other words, is in the middle of David running for five Psalms and then David looking to God when he's surrounded with evil for five Psalms. So Psalm eight's in the middle. And what we've been saying is what we want to be is wonderwhelmed. While we're running and overwhelmed from Absalom in the first five, we train, we exchange being overwhelmed for being wonderwhelmed. Wow, God, you're so good. And so now in these next five Psalms, we see that David is able to handle the pressure of uh, conspiracies about killing him in his own court, about liars all around him, um, about uh, the, the, the bad news being published by all the godless around him. Those were the first three before this tonight. Um, he's able to stay calm and collected because he's learned to look up and to trust in God despite all this around him. I'm not going to be overwhelmed by this and I'm not going to be underwhelmed by anything else. I'm going to just continue to be wonderwhelmed in God. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this, all of a sudden, David's in a moment where the wonderwhelmed kicked is great. It's, the wonderwhelmed kick is great. And yay, the cheerleader pastor got us going on it. And we're like, yes, God, so great. But all of a sudden, it hits you. Oh, I don't see any stars up there. Nothing looks wonderful anymore. And there's no wonder anymore. We're not wonderwhelmed. The overwhelming world's starting to creep in again. Or you're just feeling nothing. And you're just underwhelmed with everything. 
nothing seems to have meaning, you're unmotivated to do anything, and everyone's like, what, what does it all matter if nothing, yeah, what does any of this matter anymore? And so this is where we are, the psalm, we're only in Psalm 13, and, and we've been in a book that's encouraging us to see God's on the throne, to pray to him, to praise him, to learn this language. And we're only in chapter 13 and already there's no wonder. I don't feel God. He's forgotten me. He's abandoned me. I am depressed and my enemy is winning. That's how the first two verses read in our language. So let's look at these four questions, the quartet of questions together. So we can feel what our psalmist is feeling. Feel what David is feeling. Again, he's not asking why. And it's curious to me. It's like there's faith from the get-go. I don't understand, but I know you have a plan. That seems to be behind this. So verse 1, our first question. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He feels forgotten. I don't know if you've ever felt forgotten by God. I mean, there are times when our prayers seem to go nowhere. There are times when we wonder, should we keep praying for what we're praying for? Or does God even see my situation? Or has he kind of moved on to more important people? Has God forgotten us? Isaiah chapter 49 actually gives us a great answer to that question. Isaiah 49, if you're going to find it, it's just to your right. Oh, about, that's about a quarter of an inch. Isaiah 49, 15. You know this, or you've perhaps heard it, and if you haven't, you need to know this. Isaiah 49, 15. God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah, and he says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? It's a rhetorical question, right? Does a woman forget her? Does a mother forget her child who needs to nurse? Now, you could have a really messed up mom who might neglect a child. But actually, biologically, it's hard to forget because the woman's body tells you when it's time to feed your baby. It's hard to forget a child that's nursing. So no, a woman doesn't forget a child she needs to nurse. So, look, even if, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. So how many mothers forget their children? Let's just say in the wide world a handful. Even these may forget, but I will never. So how much more will God remember us? Behold, Isaiah 49, 16 now. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So when I was a young lad in school and you didn't want to forget your homework and you weren't that organized A-plus student who had a journal, I mean a schedule with everything in it, most students, we would just write on our hand our homework assignment. Why do we put it on our hand? So that we don't forget. God's got us on his hand so he doesn't forget. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? No. 
we know the answer is no. Even if you feel forgotten, you will not be forgotten. We have to trust that God does care even if it doesn't feel like it. And by the way, if you doubt that and you wonder, is my name really written on God's hands? All you have to do is look at the cross where God was pierced on his hands to remind us, yep, I love them that much. I will literally be engraved on my hands for them. So we may feel forgotten, but we are not forgotten. Question number two. How long will you hide your face from me? Or long enough, I've been shouting at the back of your head. I love that. But here he feels forgotten, or not forgotten, he feels abandoned. He feels ignored. So it's one thing to forget. Well, now we know that God doesn't forget us. So like, fine, you didn't forget me. You remember me, but you just don't want to address me. I get it. I'm a little annoying. God, why this now? God, I asked for that, but it's too much. I want a little less. Or it's just complaining that things aren't ever good enough. You know how kids can do that, right? You finally give them what they want and then it's, it's, it's too hot, it's too cold, or it's the wrong kind, or... We are like that with God. And so sometimes we can think, okay, okay, I get it. You're ignoring me. Silent treatment. Talk to them by hand. Leave a message at the beep. It can feel like he ignores us. Because sometimes you're like asking for direction and it just doesn't happen. And you're waiting months for direction. God, why can't you send an airplane to write it in the sky? Why can't there be a random text message on my phone from some unknown number that just says, the answer is yes. Why can't there just be some indication? Why don't you just pay attention to my request? I'm dying here. And David's literally saying this. I literally can't hold on anymore. Please, please don't hide your face from me. You open the Bible and you're like, means nothing to me. You pray like, dear Lord, what does it matter? He doesn't hear me. Well, there's an interesting passage in the Screw Tape Letters where uh, this this is a C.S. Lewis writes this really creative book about demons corresponding to each other, about how to trip Christians up. And there's this interesting chapter in the Screw Tape Letters where they talk about, okay, cool. So your Christian is going through a little lull right now. He's no longer excited about God. He's not getting these grand feelings for God anymore. It's like, make him feel like he has to feel like God is there for God to be there. And then he'll be an easy target. So what Lewis teaches us in this chapter is that you actually aren't going to feel like God is there all the time. And when you don't feel like he's there, he's not ignoring you. This is actually, Lewis goes on to say, and let me, let me just read it to you. Lewis goes on to say that actually what God will do is he will take us through troughs. There's peaks and troughs. He'll take us through troughs every now and then. He says this. It may surprise you to learn that in God's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. And some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. In other words, God actually likes to take people 
through those times where it feels like he's ignoring us. Then he says this a little bit later. So at first, God will give us these grand feelings for him. Do you remember that when he first got saved? It's just like, like you just got a girlfriend kind of a feeling or boyfriend. Um, it's just like that ecstatic enthusiasm. But then it kind of fizzles. Well, the demons continue to say this. Sooner or later, God starts you with that way, but sooner or later he withdraws. If not in fact, he withdraws at least from their conscious experience. So there comes a point when you no longer feel like he's right there and there's all this fire and fervency. He leaves the creature, they refer to us as creatures, he leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. In other words, God will take us through these troughs where it feels like he's actually left us so that we can learn to decide from the will to do things that we no longer feel like doing. And that's when we get our heart aligned with God's heart. If all we do is respond to candy, you're not actually learning to love the candy maker. But when we respond to him because we know that this is what God wants of us, even if we feel like it or not, that's when we begin to grow up. And so God will take us through these seasons, these troughs. He'll take us through these moments of, why are you ignoring me? Where are you? Where have you gone? So that we learn to look more deeply for him. We begin to move the heart to say, we want him. It's almost like that saying where you don't know what you want till you don't have it. And suddenly you know, we need God. And so he will take his favorites uh, Charles Spurgeon it was actually, you know, you know, the Prince of Preachers saved hundreds and thousands in England. Um, people had to get a ticket to attend his church. Um, and he went through long periods of feeling like God wasn't with him, long periods of depression. And he wrote much about it. He was known as a very depressed Christian. And Lewis says God takes some of his favorites through this for longer periods. Do not be discouraged. If you're asking, how long will I be shouting at the back of your head? How long will you ignore me? Why are you hiding your face? Don't be discouraged. It's not easy. I get it. But God is teaching you how to walk. He's making you into a stronger creature and one that loves him more deeply. Question number three So how long will God forget me? How long will God ignore me? Question three is in verse two. How long must I take counsel in my soul? That is implying if you're taking counsel in your soul, it implies you're alone. You have no one to take counsel with. So in other words, saying, God, why are you not there for me to talk to? Why do I have to talk to myself? So how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Now, I love how this one translation put this verse, so let me read it to you. It says, how long must I agonize grieving your absence in my heart every day? I think that captures perfectly what's being said here. 
Because that, that, that translation evokes the feeling of these words. How long must I agonize grieving your absence in my heart every day? There, there, it's like there's a void. And I'm in agony over what used to be here. And, and, and the way we deal with loss is we go through grief. So how long must I agonize grieving your absence in my heart every day? It feels like I've lost something. It feels like there's been a death, like a part of me has died. And, and, and our psalmist is grieving this. And if we go through these troughs long enough, we're going to feel this grief, the loss of God. Some, we're kind of, we're, we're feeling this sort of national grief, aren't we? And it kind of feels like there's a loss of God culturally. But how, how much worse would this feel if you felt this in your heart, this grief? And so I've, in reflection, was thinking through, and when we begin, when we feel like we're in a Psalm 13 period, I've noticed we actually move through the stages of grief. You know the stages of grief? There's uh, the five stages that they talk about. Uh, The first is denial. Once you first hit a loss, you tend to deny the loss because you have to cope somehow. And it seems to me that when we sense an absence of God, we tend to deny that at first. Oh no, I can't feel that way and still be a Christian. So like, oh no, no, he's, he's deaf. I know he's there. So we're in this denial that we feel like something's missing. Then we go through anger. We begin to blame God. God, why have you moved away from me? And then, or maybe instead, you have the anger toward yourself. Oh no, I'm an idiot. It's because I sinned or I can't get over this habit or I keep doing that and I'm stuck in this. He's turned his back on me because of what I've done. And so your anger's turned inward and you feel like you deserve this somehow. And then you move from denial to anger. You move to bargaining. God, if I, I, I'll tithe more if you just speak to me again. I'll pray and read my Bible every day if you just show me what to do. I'll evangelize to everybody I meet, if only. You begin to think that you somehow have to earn God's attention again. We begin to bargain with him when we're in these periods. And then that moves to depression. Because you know well that you shouldn't be doing that with God. And that he's actually not looking for that anyways. And so then you're like, oh man, I am the worst Christian ever. God doesn't talk to me. And I am just this forgotten sinner. What's the point? And if we're not aware that this is actually normal, that this is part of how God grows us up, we can just give up. If we're not aware how God grows us up, then we'll just give up. So sometimes, like I said before, Spurgeon went through depression. Can a Christian be depressed? Yes. I was grown, I was raised, I was not, that sounds like my parents did it. It wasn't them. I was, I was raised by a lot of youth pastors who said Christians aren't depressed. It's impossible. I disagree. Depression is not always suicidal. Depression simply is a loss of motivation. It's a loss of, it's, it's like a tire that's lost air. That's depressed. You just no longer have it. And actually, you can see that David's feeling depressed when you look at verse 3. When he says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes. What that phrase comes from, uh, well, you see it earlier in 1 Samuel 14, verse 7. 
where King Saul has the Israelites chasing their enemies. They're on the run. And Saul is so excited by this victory that's going to seal my kingship forever. He makes this rash vow and says, whoever eats food before we completely annihilate the enemy will die. Well, everyone's getting famished. And Jonathan says, my dad's an idiot. <laughs> he, he eats some honey and he, it says that his eyes were lightened. Now, were his eyes literally lightened by honey? No. It means that there was vitality in his life again. This low energy the army was going through, Jonathan found, if I said David, I'm sorry, I meant Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan found energy through the honey, found vitality. David is saying, look, you need to light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death because I don't have light. I am a blank. I am depressed. So you have denial, you have anger, you have bargaining, you have depression, and then you move finally to the fifth and final stage of acceptance. And that's where, if you guys hang in long enough and let the Psalms coke just through these times, you realize, wait, God takes his favorites through these periods. Okay, this I accept this. I don't like it, but I accept that this is part of God's will. This is how he leads us through growth. I can do this. And then the fourth question. So how long will you forget me? How long will God ignore me? How long must I grieve? And now fourth, how long must I lose? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall he continue to do his touchdown celebration over my soul? Rubbing it in my face. (laughs) I win, you lose. Kind of a thing. How long shall my enemy win? How long shall I lose? Ugh. Friends, this is a hard one. And here's where this gets real. When we allow God to take us through these really low periods of growth, we actually discover that we grow spiritually not by winning, but by losing. I know this is a hard truth. This is hard to hear because we don't like it, but we actually grow more by losing. Every time we win, it's a point for the ego. It's a point for the part of ourselves that's insecure, that's trying to carve out a place for ourselves, that's trying to get people to notice us and to value us and to say, look at me, I'm actually somebody. I'm not the person that my dad said would never amount to anything. I'm not the person that my first wife dumped. Or I'm not the person who couldn't raise, whose kids are now drunks or whatever. Like, I'm not that person. I'm this person. And often our ego's looking to try to promote us as the person we all wish we were. Actually, the person God's trying to tell us you are, but we try to do this on our own through victories. We do scoreboard. We say, I went to this college. I'm educated with this. I have these skills. I work for these people. We name drop. I know these people. Oh yeah, you know that really big church over there? I was part of the first church plant. I was in the first Bible study. Or we, we, we like to talk about the things that define us through roles, through labels, through victories, through accomplishments, achievements, because We feel better through wins. But winning 
only strengthens this part of us that says, yeah, I don't need God. As has been cleverly defined, ego is edging God out. It's a part of us that says, I got this. I'm a great chap. I'm, I'm okay with who I am. Only when you lose, only when we suffer defeat, only when the enemy is doing his touchdown celebration over us, does the ego die. And only then do we discover who we are without those victory points, without those labels, without those roles, without those accomplishments, without those victories. When I start to understand who I am as all those things are stripped away, there's nothing left but to understand that I am God's son, I am God's daughter, in whom he is well pleased. That's all that's left. And this is why Christians who are secure in Christ and know their identity in Christ are Christians who have gone through a lot of losing. And this is why it's important that we don't take a posture of we must win. And we'll do what we need to do. We'll say what we need to say. We'll pay what we need to pay to win. Because we don't actually grow up when we win. I don't know, Pastor Brandon. You got, I don't know. It doesn't sound right. I mean, doesn't God win? He does. He does. He wins in the end. And he's going to raise us all to his life in the resurrection. And we're going to win. But what we always forget when we talk about the end and we talk about the victory and we talk about the resurrection is how you get to resurrection. And it's the cross. It's suffering. It's death. It's losing. And those three days between cross and resurrection for us, as we grow up in Christ, it's not always literally three days how I wish it was. Sometimes it's three years, sometimes it's three decades, sometimes it's three days. But that is where those three... Just give it a moment. (laughs) Those three days are where these four questions are asked. It's between the nail being driven into us and God raising us up to new growth, new life. We in the midst of that say, but God's forgotten me. God's ignored me. Did not Jesus ask the same thing? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But why am I grieving? Why am I losing? And then God just points to his son on the cross and says, because I'm taking you to resurrection and new life. So to be clear, when I talk about the resurrection, yes, we will all be physically resurrected for the new heaven and new earth one day. But on the way, spiritual transformation, spiritual growth goes through the same pattern of death and resurrection. So on our way to the resurrection, you and I will go through many deaths and resurrections. There will be many Brandon snakeskins as God is, as Lewis says in mere Christianity, not just making me a stronger creature, but a different sort of creature altogether. 
And every time I shed a skin, it looks less like a snake and more like... Fill in your own imagination. Something great. Or as he says, not a horse that jumps stronger and farther, but a horse with wings that can just fly the distance. That's the process of spiritual growth, is death and resurrection. And we ask in the death, how long, how long, how long, how long? You've forgotten me, you've abandoned me, I'm grieving and I'm losing. And God says, no, you're not. It just feels that way. You're not. This is the path to victory, but it goes through Calvary. It always goes through Calvary. At the very center of our story, the cross stands and yet somehow we just always forget. We circumvent. We say, oh, that was Jesus. And the, but we're like, we just want the victory. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. My people follow me. You understand what it means to follow the leader? Yep. When he skips, you skip. When he jumps, you jump. And when he's hung on a cross, you die. Thus Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's Paul's spiritual transformation. It's his growth. It's as I die to my ego, my flesh, my self-made man and woman, to it's Christ in me. That's all I am. That's all I know. And that's where Psalm 13 takes us. And when we ask these questions, when we feel like somehow God's in quarantine, we, 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 what we need to realize is no, God's actually quarantining us. Not that he's like, oh, you're so sinful. I can't touch you. I'm going to keep my distance because that's what it feels like. But what we're realizing is he's not quarantining you. He's quarantining your fake you, your ego you, your I'm a winner you. And he's saying, set that aside. Come on, Brandon. Let's be honest. That's not you. That's your made up you. That's what you want to be. Why don't you let me make you what I see you as? So God quarantines our ego, our pride, our flesh, so that we can grow up and be healthy, so that we can be cured of our insecure disease, of our lack of identity in Christ. That's why we're calling these questions from quarantine. Not just because we're in quarantine and we're wondering how long, but because when God is quarantining the parts of us that need to die, it feels like, God, can you please get this over with? It's like, I will. Just be patient. I will. So, nope, God has not forgotten us. God has not ignored us. Yes, it might be, it might feel like grieving. Yes, it might feel like losing, but it's all according to his vision for how he sees you. Because he wants you to become literally the way he sees you in Christ. So, here's where we end with, um, uh, verses five and six end with praise. And this is where we want to end too. Because even though we're in pain and we're asking how long and we feel forgotten, we feel neglected, we feel like we're grieving, we feel like we're losing, we want to still end with praise. This is how we make it through. With prayer, verses three and four, the prayer, and praise, verses five and six. When you're in pain, Prayer and praise are our paths forward. I want you to also notice the difference between the pain and the praise. Um, verses 1 and 2, our pain, is all about how he feels. He's not saying, God, you have forgotten me and you're bad. You're bad, bad God. 
He's expressing how he feels. But in verses 5 and 6, he relies on what is real. And this is why we can doubt and still grow in God. Because what you feel is very different than what is real. We should pray what we feel. When we feel abandoned, when we feel forgotten, and when we are grieving and losing, go ahead and pray what you feel. Because you need to, you just need to cling and reach out to God. You need to just, you need to feel your longing for Him. Go ahead and pray what you feel. The psalmists are honest. David is not sugarcoating. It's like, well, I don't feel like you're there, but I mean, I'm the king and I should feel like, you know, I, I should pretend I know you're there and I'm totally confident in this. And I mean, we know too many phony, too much phony Christianity. That's just, God's all skipping rope and joy. Unicorns and, and rainbows and cotton candy. No, it's, in reality, we walk through Psalm 13 more than we like. It's okay to pray what we feel, but we praise what is real. We pray what we feel, but we praise what is real. So the psalmist says, did something change in the middle of this psalm? Or is he simply declaring what he knows is real despite what he feels? Probably the latter. He's saying, look, but despite all this, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation and I will sing. I will sing to you because you have dealt bountifully with me. He is declaring what is real despite what he feels. And when we are in these moments, this is what we need. Go ahead. Pray. Pour your heart out before God. Be honest before him. Be open and unafraid before God. But that's why we also have sermons from the word this is why we have the worship team leading us in praise because it doesn't matter what we're feeling these are declarations of reality and we 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 latch on i know that's real i just don't feel it but that's how we move forward prayer and praise will get us moving forward we pray what we feel but we praise what is real so god i feel like you've forgotten me but you have engraved me on your hands. I don't feel that, but I know that's real. God, I feel like you've ignored me. I feel like you're just, you don't care about me or that you turned my, your back on me because of something I did. But I know that the Bible says you'll never leave me or forsake me. But I know that you are doing this so I can grow up. God, I feel like there's just a ton of grief. But I know what's real is you have dealt bountifully with me. And I'll, I'll recall some thanks and some praise. God, I feel like I'm losing. I feel like every idiotic enemy in the world is winning. And I'm tired of watching their touchdown celebrations. I'm tired of watching them do their little home plate, walk-off, home run, dance at mobbing the batter. But I know that despite what I feel, you win in the end. That's what that looks like. We pray what we feel, but we praise what is real. So 
the way that Lewis, C.S. Lewis, ends the screw tape letter chapter that we read earlier, he ends it like this, the very last sentence. Uh, this is powerful. Um, now, when I read it, you remember these are demons talking. So when it says enemy, that's God, right? So just flip your mind for a moment. They say, our cause, so the devil's cause, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Or to put in my words, what are they saying? They're saying, look, Christians are never more powerful than when they no longer feel like doing anything for God or no longer feel like he's there. They look around and say, yep, abandon me, forgotten me, I'm grieving, I'm losing. When they look around and say all of that and yet still choose to obey him, that is when the church makes hell quiver. So friends, let's be encouraged if we're feeling like we're crying out from quarantine. We're asking this quartet of questions. How long feels like it's been going on? Well, just a little too long. God is working in you. Keep praying and keep praising. And you will find God's working you into the leader that the world needs today. I believe every Christian is a leader in this world, or at least potentially so. And it doesn't need us, I'm sorry, it's never needed us more than now. And this is our season to grow. Let's not avoid the pain, but let's ask the questions and let's let God grow us up. Let's pray.